Um, good to be with you. Hope you've been having a good weekend. Uh, I'm excited to, to launch into a new book today. So, I know, right? So Suki was telling me that there might have been a misunderstanding here uh, that, uh, that I was, that some people felt unresolved with Matthew. It was kind of like, I need more Matthew in my life. Three years is not enough Matthew. But I was saying a little bit on and off, like, hey, I might preach once more on Matthew and might start something new. Um, a little thing about me is I'm generally really good at starting things, and it's like kind of hard for me to finish things. So I feel very accomplished <laughs> that I did not. <laughs> so don't make me feel bad about not speaking another message on Matthew. Um, so we are going to jump into the book of Numbers. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a good enough I'm not yet a good enough preacher to preach through the book of Numbers. All right. So what we're going to do is we are going to get jump into the book of 1 Thessalonians. So if you want to jump into flip through Thessalonians. All right. Praise the Lord. Thanks, Rosa. All right, here we go. So I'm going to give uh, some background and some context to our book. Um, for those of you who are new with us, the reason why everyone's laughing and cheering and stuff is because it took us three years to get through the book of Matthew. It was awesome. We went through every line. We unpacked the whole book. And so now we're, uh, we're going on to another book. I definitely picked a shorter book on purpose. <laughs> that was not by accident. Um, but we're jumping into First Thessalonians. So as much as I'm up here, I'll probably... Um, anchor us around this book. So let's do some context and find out like what's going on with, uh, with this particular book. So this book was written by the Apostle Paul. Um, Apostle Paul, if you're not familiar, was that guy who was persecuting Christians, and then he's on his horse riding uh, the road to Emmaus? Damascus. I knew it was one of those roads. He's riding into Damascus. He gets knocked off his horse. By a, by a big bright light, and then he hears the Lord um, Jesus speak to him. He says, why, why are you persecuting me? And then he basically says, get up and serve me for the rest of your life and go to the Gentiles, which was new. Jesus, even in his ministry, went mostly to the Jews. And so this is after Jesus' resurrection. He has this encounter with Paul, and he gives Paul this mission to go after uh, those who are not Jewish, which is a large portion of the world. So... Um, Paul wrote a bunch of the New Testament. He wrote a bunch of letters. This was probably his first letter that he wrote. Uh, it, I'm sorry, at least the ones that we've still captured. So he could have wrote other ones that didn't end up in the canon of Scripture. But for the ones in the Bible, this was probably one of his first letters. It was around 50 AD, most likely, uh, that, that we're reading this. Um, so I'm going to read the portion of Acts where it talks about what happened uh, when Paul first went, went to Thessalonica. And so we get, a, we get an idea of what's going on with this church and the context that Paul's writing into. Because it's really important to know what's going on when we read the words of Paul. Like, it makes a difference as to what the environment is that he's speaking into. So in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, we find Paul's first trip to Thessalonica. It says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So when we think about who's making up this early church that, God speak, that, uh, that Paul's speaking into, uh, we see it here. There's some Jews that were persuaded, um, those, those joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So these were people that were fearing the God of Israel, but were Greek. They weren't uh, biologically Jewish. And then quite a few prominent women. That's who's making up this early church. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. Don't you love that the NIV uses bad characters? <laughs> they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob. I kid you not, this is actually in the Bible. And started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So this is either Paul and Silas staying with a guy named Jason or the house church is in Jason's house. And so they go to Jason's house. Doesn't this not sound like the Bible kind of? It's like Jason, there's like mobs, bad characters. (laughs) Um, All right. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is no other king, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond, and they let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Okay, so in some other cases, Paul hangs out uh, in these cities to establish the church much more firmly than he does here. He's probably only here, we don't really know from the text, maybe he's here a month, maybe two. We know that he spent three Sabbath days reasoning from the scriptures, so it was at least three weeks, but we don't know how much more it was that. It doesn't seem like too much more. So most people think it was about three to five months that he was in Thessalonica. Um, and there was immediate persecution, So it did not take long for there to be strong persecution where there's riots and mobs and angry people and, you know, the the religious leaders of the time were trying to stamp this thing out called the way. And uh, and so they go right after it. They arrest some of the early Christians right away and and throw them in jail. Like this is this is the launch to their church. I mean, imagine if we were we were in a house church and kind of like we were meeting in living rooms and stuff and we were having worship, all of us. Uh, or maybe a smaller group of us. And then all of a sudden, mobs and riots start forming outside. And like, we're kind of worried when we start walking around because there's like people that are angry and telling the authorities lies that could get us arrested. Right? That's the environment here. The leaders were being pursued to be locked up. And, uh, and so in this case, you know, do they really care that much about Caesar's honor? They're like, oh, Caesar, you know, they're breaking Caesar's decree that, uh, you know, there's another, another Lord but Caesar. And like, they don't care about Caesar, right? Like, they're just trying to persecute the church here. So this is the environment where we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, one of the cool things is when you read different um, letters in the New Testament, 
you feel different themes based upon what's going on in those churches. And so as you think about this, think about that context and then think about what's the main emphasis that, that Paul is sending towards this church because it's, it's, uh, it's very apparent. All right, here we go. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for you all and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For there were brothers and sisters, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. We became you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Let's go with that. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. If you're, if you're familiar with like the letters that are written to the churches in Revelation um, by the Apostle John or the letters that are even in the New Testament, usually by the end of the first chapter, there's some kind of rebuke or challenge or something going on that's kind of like, man, you've fallen off the deep end, like, you know, there's heresy among you, get that stuff out of there, or like in one of them, there's a, there's a dude's son that's like sleeping with his father's wife, you know, there's like stuff going on. Uh, it doesn't feel like that in this church. So I think that the first thing that we noticed, even when we read into chapter 2, is Paul, of course, has some encouragement and some words to tell them about how to live life well and stuff, but it, it, it is almost always followed with, with, as you are already doing, keep doing X, Y, Z. And so I think the first thing that we notice before, as we're digging into the, 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 the Church of Thessalonians in the letter that Paul wrote is, it's pretty amazing from the very beginning, because Paul is just coming with almost pure encouragement in this letter, which is... Uh, for those of us who know Paul, it's kind of a deviation from his standard MO sometimes. So the first thing that he writes is, it's his greeting. He says, grace and peace to you. I love this because almost always Paul starts his letters with this term, grace and peace to you. And I think if we're used to reading the New Testament, sometimes we just blaze right over it. But these are really power-packed words. The word grace can be broken down as like God's riches, God's blessing, God's abundance at somebody else's expense. Basically, the word grace is you're given something hugely valuable that you didn't earn at all. The word peace is this peace shalom, which is like everything's good. All is well. Nothing is wrong. There's no internal strife. There's no external strife. It's just like, it's good. God's kingdom is established. Rule is there. Justice is there. Truth is there. 
peace is there, joy is there. That's all trapped up in this word, peace. And so I think that the, the reason why I wanted to stop here for a second and talk about this is because there's kind of an ultimate declaration about what the will of God is at the beginning of every book when, when Paul says this or when somebody else says this, when he says, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Did you know that the will of God for your life, the ultimate will of God for your life and for this world is grace and peace? That's an amazing thing. Like, hear the heart of God in that. What he wants for you is blessing that goes far beyond what you've deserved, what you've earned, what, you're, what you've done right. And then on the peace side, he says, man, if it was all up to me, there wouldn't be any persecution. There wouldn't be any injustice. There wouldn't be any strife. There wouldn't be any of that, like, internal turmoil that like contending with the flesh man like I, I, I don't know for me lately I feel like the contending with the flesh kind of part of this life lately has been just a thing that I've been hating more you know like God didn't intend for us to live in a civil war but sometimes it feels like that and it's okay to hate that. It's okay to hate the fact that there's internal propensities that would lead you towards wickedness. Like, we should hate that stuff. And I think by God declaring peace to you, what he's declaring is, man, my ultimate will for your life is that you would experience far beyond what you deserve, and you would experience a peace internally and externally that's complete and profound and holistic. Now, the crazy thing is, is God saying, or, or Paul saying grace and peace to you in an environment where there's crazy persecution and they're being thrown in jail and there are people coming against them, threatening their life and abusing them. And so there's kind of this duality thing, but I think the thing that we'll notice, one of the things that I want to call out really early as we go through this passage is how much of the emphasis is put upon the ultimate release from suffering and persecution that's provided at the end when Jesus comes and delivers this church. At the very end of this chapter, it talks to, it, it says in verse 9, they tell how you turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. See, the, the thing that I want to call out is that it's important for us to maintain these, these kind of like tensions here where Paul starts the letter by saying, like, it's very important for you to remember the heart and the ultimate will of God on the earth is for you to experience abundance of grace and, and peace. But then he also at the same time anchors them and says, well done in your endurance. Well done for the mindset that you have that is ultimately anchored on Christ's ultimate coming in the end. In other words, don't think something's wrong when things aren't right. Don't think something's ultimately wrong when things aren't exactly as they should be. 
For some reason, for Paul, he has no problem saying something like this. For, you know, like, for me, I'm kind of like, wow, like, that really feels like a, a tension here. It's like, okay, grace and peace. I deserve, you know, I'm getting more than I deserve and, you know, abundance and stuff. And then, like, I'm living in a situation. But the early church, the church that he probably commends more than any other, is living in this exact space. And it's, like, one of the main reasons why he goes, amazingly, amazingly well done. In fact, all of the churches in the surrounding region, your biggest witness is the fact that you're living in this tension and you're waiting patiently enduring for the second coming, for the ultimate coming of Christ. And so the the question that I'd love to just ask is before we jump in and we'll, we'll dig into some of these texts is how much of your life and your joy and your peace comes from the fact that Jesus will come on a cloud someday with all of the faithful witnesses that have passed before us and will deliver us from all of this stuff and we'll get to be called up into this cloud with our Savior and then he'll make all things right. How much of you like your tangible day-to-day peace and joy comes from that truth. Because I would contend that this church that's doing it so well in such a crazy time of persecution, they were very, very anchored in that. They saw Paul as a guy living where he was living for this, for this time where he'd stand before God. He'd stand before the one he loved So much so that in one of his letters, he says, man, it would be way better for me if I was gone and like present with the Lord and hanging out with him. But for your sake, I'm going to hang out here and I'm going to continue to get shipwrecked and scourged and persecuted and like all this stuff and whipped. He was so anchored in this, this other time, this other world, this future time. And everything that he built down here was in anticipation of this, this thing that was coming. And I think there's this, like, there's this blessing, and then there's this kind of curse of persecution. The curse of persecution is obvious, <laughs> right? Nobody likes getting whipped, right? Nobody likes getting insulted. Nobody likes being called a fool and getting rejected. Nobody likes suffering in any of its forms. Take whatever... And, 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 and don't, because the scriptures is talking about a very specific kind of suffering here, don't minimize the suffering that just comes from living in the confines, con, confines of our own flesh. Or that, that, that comes from living in a world with a bunch of broken people around us. There, there's a form of suffering and persecution that we just, that's just a reality of this world And part of what I'd love to say and that I think is so firmly in this first chapter is that doesn't mean something's wrong. Because you have temptation, it doesn't mean something's wrong. Like, it does in the ultimate sense. Like, we were never supposed to experience this stuff because we were supposed to live in perfect harmony with God and there was never supposed to be a fall. But under that, that's... That's what we're living in. 
And so the thing that I'd just love to say to, to us is like, there's a need for grit and there's a need for perseverance. And the coolest thing about this is that's the very thing that the, the Thessalonian church here gets commended for where God says, hey, just because you're pushing through, just because you received the God, you received the Lord in this crazy environment, because you were able to believe in an environment like the one that you're in, everybody around you is talking about it. Like, that's your strongest witness. I don't even need to witness about you. The, the testimony about you is flying through all the region because your faith is strong in an environment that sucks. Right? Like your faith is strong in an environment that's not easy. And he commends their perseverance and their endurance. So let's look at this part in the scripture. In verse 3, he says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's work from the end there. Your endurance inspired by hope. The word hope is this joyful future looking into something that's good. If you're hopeful for tomorrow, what it means is tomorrow is going to be better than today. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a looking forward and a joy when you look forward and say, okay, the sun's going to come out tomorrow right? <laughs> no. Yeah. Knox like, yeah, we get it. It just wasn't funny. Um, it's, a, it's a looking forward to a future time that you're able to anchor around now, and you have joy now, not because everything's good now, but you have joy for something that you believe is coming then. That's hope. Hope is, is, is living in the realities of then, now. That's what hope is. And so he says to this church, he goes, wow, your works are crazy. Your labor is amazing. We'll talk about those things. And he says, all of this is because you have this endurance that's based on hope. You have this, this endurance, this, this thing that like won't give up that faces hardship and still pushes through. That's what endurance is. Like, think of a long-distance endurance runner. Why is that stuff so impressive? Like, have you heard of this century run that crazy people do? Yeah. Like, one of my coworkers' husband did this century run. It's basically a marathon every day for four days in a row. Yeah. It's like absolute, complete madness. And you're carrying a pack because you have to, like, sleep at night. So there's, like, a—I mean, it's just—but, like, why is that so impressive in one sense and crazy in another? But the reason why that's so impressive is because you're basically—your actions are not determined by how much something hurts. <laughs> like, when you talk to those crazy people as to why they're addicted to it and why they do it over and over again— it's, a, it's like a self-discipline overcoming thing. It's like, I want to see if I can overcome. Like, that's why I do that. It's not that it's pain-free and that it's joyful when you're along the way. There's not even a, really a prize at the end. You know what I mean? It's like... But it's like, I want to see 
that even if it hurts and my body says shut down, I yell at my flesh and I say, we're not stopping, we're continuing to go, and we keep going. Like, that's endurance. I'm reading a book on the Navy SEALs and their training, and the whole thing is set up in order to break the people that don't have grit and endurance. And they put them through all of these tests, but the whole thing is it's like this mental thing. It's, it's not even really a physical thing. Some of it is, but it's like everybody, the way they put it is that every person who makes it into the mental part of the Navy SEAL training uh, is physically able to make it through to the other side. That's not the difference. It's the mental part. And the people that make it through in that situation, they've had this dream in their life to be on the battlefield, to be a Navy SEAL, to like go into harm's way to protect others. And it's this future thing where they're like, I have always wanted this thing. This has been my dream forever. And they endure and push through. And then for the people that that's not as real, it's not as vivid, then those people fall out and they, you know, they, they don't make it. But the idea of endurance is this thing where you like, you feel pain. Everything is telling you stop and you push through. Your actions are not determined by what your body is telling you. And so we read about the Thessalonian church that has crazy endurance because they're experiencing suffering on all sides, very real suffering, and they're continuing to stand strong. And that's their witness. Like somehow God in his divine thinking and divine plan says, you know what would be an amazing testimony about me on the earth? Is if my creation comes and persecutes another part of my creation and then one part is strong enough to say, that's not going to shut my mouth. That's not going to change my actions. That's not going to deter me from pushing through. And he commends them in here for this crazy endurance that's inspired by that very hope that we are talking about, which is the Lord Jesus coming. And I think, you know, in the, in the early church, in the early church, they were utterly convinced that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And they lived like it. They were utterly convinced that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And, and they lived like it. And I think because there's been some abuses on this, where people will say, Jesus is coming back in 37 days, you know, at 2 a.m., whatever it is. I think there's kind of been a backlash in the church where we've been really afraid of anybody saying, like, we should live as if Jesus could come back in our lifetime. It's almost like immediately if you start to hint at something like that, people go, like, cult leader. I'm out of here. Right? And I'm not saying that I know the time or the hour or that anybody does or anything like that. Like, you know, if somebody starts doing that stuff, I get weirded out too. That's not what I'm saying. But what I, what I am saying is we should not go so far as to just be like, oh yeah, I'm pretty sure it's like, how long's it been? 2,000 years? Probably ain't gonna be in my 80 years. 
We need to have an urgency on this thing. We need to have an expectation on this thing. To the extent that we're able to live in the reality that Jesus could come back, he could come back right now. Right now. Not then, because that's past, but now. Now, now, now. He could come back any second. And we need to have a reality of the way that we live that's really real, that Jesus could come back now. Truncate this whole thing. Man, I've been working so hard for my promotion. Jesus, let me get it first. It's like, what? No, now. And they, they were living this way and so think about how that would change. Say we we're in like massive persecution right now, or even just live like some of you I know are in a place where things have been really tough, whether it's just from contending with the flesh or dealing with your family or dealing with friends or just like things not working out or health stuff or like fill in all of those blanks and then say endurance, how does that change based upon this view that the Thessalonian church lived in that kept them so strong through all this stuff. The things of life and kind of the craziness that we go, it just, it just comes down two or three or five notches when, you re, when, you, when you're anchoring your hope in this coming of our Lord and Savior in a really helpful way that allows you to have endurance. If you knew Jesus was coming next week at this time, I'm not saying he is, don't run out. (laughs) But if you knew that Jesus was coming next week at this time, it would probably change some things in terms of your ability to endure this week. Don't you think? Like some stuff that would otherwise feel really big wouldn't feel that big anymore. You'd be like, I can walk in holiness this week because it's one week and then Jesus is coming back. (laughs) I can do that. I can do that. Right? It's like when you go on a missions trip and you're like, I am all in for two weeks. (laughs) I am all in for two weeks. The six-week one, I'm not sure. I'll go for the two-week one. There's this other thing in this this verse, chapter 3. It says, work produced by faith, labor prompted by love. Man, I love this. Work produced by faith. They have this faith in Jesus that he, being the ultimate king of kings, came and laid down his life for them. And they're living in this response to that expression of love towards them that causes them to work and labor for the one that did that. And it even says here in there, it says, the next verse is, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that, you, that he has chosen you. There is this such a real sense with them that they are crazy loved by God, not because their situation is perfect today. They're still in, in the thick of it, but they're living in the wake of a God who came to earth to die for them, and it's real and alive to them, and that love response inspires them to this work and this labor, and they're like, I am chosen by the king. He plucked me out of this insane world and is letting me walk in truth. That is amazing. He told me before he came back again 
And then it was too late. Like, he told me now, I'm chosen. He loves me. And they live in this thing that has endurance, labor, work for the Lord. Towards the end of the passage, at the end, it says this. It says, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Man, don't you want that? Dude, I want that. I really want that. For our church and, and for me personally, like to be able to have churches in the other regions strengthened because they go, have you heard about that crazy church in Berkeley of all places? That's like the, possibly the modern equivalent of Thessalonica, right? It's like, man, there was mobs in the street and there's craziness going on and I think the cops were in riot gear because there's riots and mobs and definitely bad characters. (laughs) But there was a church there, and I love how it's the corporate expression. Like, the Thessalonian church is inspiring these re- like all of these churches and regions, and these other churches are rising up into faithfulness and endurance because of simply their endurance, simply their labor in love and in faith, and that they're pushing through and refuse to pull back. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't even need to say anything about it, for they themselves report the kind of reception you gave us. It's not part of my message, but I want to stop on this one real quick. Did you notice that the first thing that he calls out in terms of the testimony that the other churches notice about what they did right that's so powerful is the hospitality that they had to the leaders in the body of Christ. That's kind of crazy. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. There is this very real thing that has to do with how we treat our leaders is very much an extension of how much we honor God. It is totally true. And I'm not saying this so that, like, it's kind of weird. Actually, it's kind of weird. I, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. But it's true. Yeah. That's what Isaac said, not me. But for real, like, we need to be great about honoring the leaders in the body of Christ that come into our midst. As if it was the Lord himself walking into our midst. It's a huge deal, and it's one of the things that Paul commends them on. See, actually, Paul did it first. He's talking about how good they were by by receiving him. So it's not weird when I do that from up here. All right, anyway. They tell you, they, they tell how you turned to God from idols, to serving the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven. See, this same structure that we talked about in verse 3 is mirrored at the end of this, which is he almost talks about the very basic and clear expression of their faith having very, very clearly two components. The one con- component is 
how you turned from worthless things of this world to God to serve him. First component that he praises the Thessalonian church for is that they were serving, serving God. There's a very practical, real aspect to their faith that had a service aspect to them. They were compelled by love. They were compelled by faith to be in this thing of service. I think that's the one that we know about. We talk a lot about that one. We all know that we should be serving like the body of Christ and, you know, that. So the second portion, which is also mirrored from verse 3, is this. And to wait for his son from heaven. These are the two components. There's a lot of things that he could have highlighted and mirrored twice as his commending statements about this church. He, he, he commended them on their service, their labor, their love, and then he commended them on their ability to wait, their ability to endure. Who hates waiting in here? I just got sonic internet put into my house. Praise the Lord, I don't have to wait for upload speeds anymore. It's like 500 megabits a second all over my house, and John's going to help me make it faster. All of this is so... Waiting sucks. Nobody... Waiting's not fun. Even in this, like, I'm not going to lie and say that the Thessalonian church, like, loved the process of waiting. But I think when you stop and you say, okay, like, waiting is a part of this deal. Waiting is a part of discipleship. Endurance is a part of discipleship. I'm in this place where I have access to the joy of the Holy Spirit while I wait. And then I have this hope and this joy that's found from this future sight of my King coming back. And so it's almost like in the waiting, the struggle, you can start to you can start to use the struggle to anchor your heart in the thing that matters more. The struggle can become a tool in your arsenal that God uses to anchor your perspective on this future time. And so more and more you start to live in a way where you're like, yeah, I hate that my back hurts all the time and that I'm laying on the floor. Like, I hate that I have to deal with the judgments of people when they find out that I'm a Christian, I'm, I love Jesus when I'm at work, or, you know, that I get up on, on Sproul Fountain and I preach the gospel and people snicker at me and tease me and do that stuff. Like, all, all of those moments, if you're able to stop and say, this is normal, this is what God, this is in some senses, not in the ultimate sense, but in some senses, this is what God intended, because Jesus said, they will persecute you. This will not be easy, but, but take heart because I've overcome the world. In other words, I've told you this is coming. It happened to me, and I overcame, and that means you can overcome. And so, so if you have this kind of posture towards life, then what happens is more and more with each thing that comes at you where you're like, man, I hate temptation. Man, I hate that thing. You start to hate the things that God hates, and you start to look forward to the thing that God has you anchor your joy in. And man, I think the church needs to hate some stuff way more than we do. Man, I, 
hate that stuff. I hate the part of my flesh that pulls me towards sin. I hate the fact that I'm living in, in God's world that he created and the majority of his creation wants nothing to do with him. I hate that. And a lot of that stuff can make you look forward and say, man, like, I need to pull forward some serious joy from, from that. I'm going to, like, I'm going to nurse joy out of that first, that, that coming thing that is going to be my strength today. And that'll provide us the endurance that we need. I want to say also that there's a very real joy that he talks about in verse 6 that I want to pray that we're able to access as a church because the joy of the Lord is strength. What we don't do in this is just say, okay, well, it'll suck now. It'll be great then. And so I'm going to mope around here like a miserable Christian for my 40 years of walking with Jesus. And then, you know, we'll have some eternity and it's going to be bliss. That's not it, right? Like there is an accessible joy both from the hope of the future and then from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that, is, that, I, that I long to be more real for us. I long to be more real for us. When I listen to Paul and his words in this, he is a thankful guy. He is so thankful. Man, I drive so much joy because I hear the story about you and your faith and man, I'm so excited about how you're living for God. And like, he's able to pick up the good things in this world and derive a huge amount of joy about them. And he gets like, he gets kind of mushy in here, which is not like the strong apostle Paul, but he really, like, we'll keep reading. It doesn't stop in chapter one. He keeps going. He goes, I'm so thankful for you. Like, I get joy out of you and I love you. And, and I think there's like a, there is a very real joy that comes from thankfulness that I, man, I just really want us to live in because I think especially in this area, thankfulness is just more difficult than it is other places. It just is. There's a spiritual environment in this area that makes thankfulness extremely hard. And, uh, and I think that if we could get to a place where we're operating in the joy of the Holy Spirit and we are experts at thankfulness, I think that we'd be able to endure much better. And I think that we'd have love that's in response, or I'm sorry, works that are in response to love and, and, and labor that's in response to faith like this church did. And so, Zach, if you come, come up, uh, I'd love to, uh, to close with a couple things. I want to pray for our joy that's given by the Holy Spirit. Like it says in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. I want to pray for that kind of joy that doesn't make any sense. I want to pray for breakthrough in the area of thankfulness for every single person in here. And then the final thing that I want us to pray together is that we would have this hope that's anchored in the future bliss of being able to live with our Savior and that he'll make all things right. And a lot of the joy and a lot of the bliss and a lot of the things that we find 
and that we feel scared if they're not there from the present reality now, that there'd almost be this migration of where we anchor our joy. Like, joy from promotion or joy from all things going right here would shift to this thing of my joy is truly anchored in the Lord and his future coming. And so let's stand together. I'm going to kick us off into a prayer time. And then we'll invite anybody who wants to get prayer up for uh, the prayer team. Can I just get a, a quick show of hands? Just raise your hand if you've been going through some form of suffering this week, whether it's like temptation or just annoyance of living in the flesh or whether it's the realities of living in relationship with people who are broken and struggles with family, like that, those types of things. Or if it's straight up real, like the, the real persecution, like you're preaching on Sprawl this week and someone threw a tomato at you or you witnessed at somebody at work and they reported you to HR or something like that. Can I just see a show of hands of, of anybody who's been in that place? Yeah. Thought so. Okay. Well, Lord, you see the hands that are raised. And God, what I ask, Lord, is that you would show us, you would, you would give us the ability, like you do, to convert our sufferings into affections of our heart that are anchored in a future place that's unshakable. God, I thank you that you're the pro at taking even the hard things and turning them into things that will prosper us and your kingdom. And so, Father, I just pray for everybody who had their hand up that's been feeling this and that is inviting you by having that hand up when they did and, and that act of, of raising their hand being an invitation for your love and your power to come close. God, I pray that you would swoop in and that you would refine our mindsets and that you'd strengthen us in the deepest places. God, to be able to almost use these tough times, these feelings like of disappointment or other forms of suffering, God, and that would be currency to convert our hearts, affections into this future reality. I pray that you would kick the devil in the face in that way. God, that even the bad things of the world would be converted into currency for an anchoring of our heart into future hope. And God, I pray a blessing over this church, God, everybody in this church, God, that this church would be widely known in this area saying like, that place is crazy thankful. They're in Berkeley and their witness is so strong. Do you know the endurance they, those people have? That is insane. Their love for Christ is crazy. And they're in the heart of the Bay Area. That is nuts. God, I pray that you would prompt us and help us to be experts in the area of thanksgiving. That we would be overflowing with thanksgiving. 
that any sense of entitlement, God, that would be lingering or trying to hang around would be completely drowned out and strangulated by thanksgiving. And finally, Lord, I pray that there would just be an amazing release of your Holy Spirit over everybody in here who needs your joy and who welcomes your joy. If you want the joy of the Lord, just welcome the joy of the Lord. Lord, we we are people who say that we need to live off of your joy. Your joy is our very strength in this life. And to think that we can make it through this life without your joy is hubris, God. And so we just say, God, right now, God, would you, by the power of your spirit, come and increase our levels of joy, that you would break through all of the resistant walls, that you would come into all the places that push back, and that your joy would be an offensive threat for your kingdom, God. For everybody who is coming off a hard week of enduring and pushing through, God, I pray that these words of life that came out of your scripture, that they would result in joy in the deepest parts of their being, God. And so we give you the worship and we give you the honor and we thank you that, God, although we have to endure for a moment, God, there is an eternal reality with you that is pure bliss and we thank you for the honor of being able to testify to your great name now by enduring through the hardships of this life. We give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want some prayer, come on up. Otherwise, let's worship together.